Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello, welcome to another edition of Paleo Jam. I'm your host, Michael Mills. And in this episode, we have um, Dr. Ellen Mather, Adjunct Associate Lecturer at Flinders University, um, back in the room or in the Zoom in this case. And um, we had Ellen um, in season one talking about an Australian vulture. And we might talk a little bit about that during the course of the next 30 minutes. Um, but we're going to be talking about eagles. Um, welcome, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Great um, to be back. Yeah, great to have you. And so when we last spoke, you had looked at this bird that had thought to have been, it was thought that it had been an extinct eagle and you reclassified it. You had a look at it and you've gone, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah, that's correct. So it had actually been suggested previously that it could be a vulture by paleontologists such as Gerald Van Tetz and Patricia Vickers-Rich, um, but it wasn't actually confirmed until my research on it. Yeah, so you, what what was it? For those that haven't heard that episode, and I recommend listening to it because we also talk about flamingos in Australia, flamingos and vultures in Australia, like who knew? But but what was it that, that confirmed to you with cryptogyps? Is that how I say it? Yep. That's that's the one. Um, what was it that made you go, yep, yeah, this is, I can confirm this this was a vulture? So it was closer comparisons to of the type specimen, which was a distal humerus, to a range of species um, of eagles and vultures, as well as new fossil material we had from a few sites that we could refer to cryptogyps. So uh, one of the big ones was a tarsa metatarsus. So that's um, one of the lower leg bones in the bird that connects directly to the foot. And so this bone is quite important as it can tell us a lot about you know what a bird is doing with its feet. So naturally in eagles, there's a lot of adaptations for musculature to increase grasping strength um, for grabbing onto prey. But vultures don't have this. So they actually have fairly weak um, musculature compared to other eagles because they're not doing that. They're scavenging, so they're mostly just using their feet to walk around. And so this tarsus metatarsus was much more similar to a vulture than an eagle, and it really helped um, reclassify the species. And it's fascinating, something like that, isn't it? That 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 comparing it with things that are already known, and particularly in terms of the function, the functional use of that. It's like, well, this can't be that. It has to be this. Yeah, that's right. So in some ways, study of more recently extinct animals is a bit easier than those that lived in the very distant past because we often have a lot of comparative species that are around today. So not in all cases, like I'm sure some of these um, researchers of the marsupial megafauna can tell you we had some very odd animals that don't really have many modern comparatives, but they still have you know vultures and eagles alive today. So we can get a good idea of what extinct species of those birds would have lived and been like. 
Yeah, we can we can literally we can go and look at a living vulture and see how it operates and exists and functions and what the particular specific I guess um structures it has in its skeleton and other things what we we can see what it does and and how it works yeah yeah so okay so let's get to 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 to, to move on from eagles although we might come back to vultures um so this this new research there was already one um and and, and again I'm going to check the pronunciation with you Dinah I keep wanting to say dinotweetus. Okay, <laughs> that's actually a fun way of saying it. Um, Dinatoetus. Right, so not dinotweetus then. No. <laughs> but you're welcome to call it that if you want. Well, it gives a a, a, a kind of a, a sense of what it, like dino, like big, and tweetus, it, 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 yes, it's a bird. Um, maybe you can use that for another name for another thing. You're welcome. Maybe, yeah. Just make sure my name's on the paper if you do. <laughs> Okay, so um, Dinotoaetus. Dinotoaetus. Dinotoaetus, okay. Um, so so there was already one within the group um, that had been described. That's correct. Is that right? Gaffe? The... Yeah, so Dinotoaetus gaffe, which is the largest eagle to have ever lived in Australia. So we reckon um, it probably would have been up to twice the size in body mass that compared to a modern wedge-tailed eagle. So pretty large. That's um that's a very very large eagle. For those of us mm. that, that live in Australia and have the privilege, particularly driving up through the outback, and, and I spend a bit of time up in the Flinders Ranges and stuff. And the the the, the best part of of or one of the first I suppose signals and indications that you're kind of getting there is when you start seeing wedgies flying around or sitting on the road waiting for kangaroos to be run over. Mm. <laughs> um, so twice the size. The new one you've, you've described is not quite as big as that, but it's interesting that you've got two now within that group. Yeah, it is. So it really wasn't expected on our end. Um, so usually you have what is called competitive exclusion or niche partitioning. So you can't have too many species of you know the same kind you know, using the same resources in the same place at once. So usually that's um, so that tells us that for multiple eagles in this group to be around at the same time, they had to be exploiting different niches or perhaps inhabiting slightly different environments to be able to coexist. Yeah. So so what what do we know? What what do we know? What the two. Well, with the wedge-tailed eagles, which would have been around at the time, do, do I guess, do, yes. so you've got three major eagles plus a few other things and giant ground birds and vultures, um, and it always reminds, almost reminds me of 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 part of Tim Flannery's The Future. He does when he's talking about New Zealand as being an island of birds. We mm -hmm. we forget sometimes the the degree to which birds in Australia seem to be central to our, I guess, evolutionary story. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, like, because bird song, bird, songbirds came from here too, I think. Yeah, so passerines, so the songbirds uh, originated within Australia. Yeah, so 
bringing us back to to, to this this new research, um, like if we saw one today, what what would we be looking at? What would it look like? What what, what do we know? And obviously, you know, with a few bones, you can't say what color necessarily it was and stuff. But what what do you reckon it looked like? Hmm. So our new eagle um, in the set in the genus Dinartoetus, um, the species is Dinartoetus pachyosteus. So that literally means um, the thick-boned, powerful eagle, and the name literally named for its very robust bones. So size-wise, it was closer to a wedge-tailed eagle than its you know, larger relative, Dinartoetus gappi, but it would have been a much more heavily built um, eagles compared to a wedge tail so probably a bit more chunky more um muscular perhaps yeah i was thinking like i was thinking chunky because it, it immediately put me to mind of um euros macropodus mm. robustus so again going back to the flinders you go up there and there's and they kind of live somewhere between the flatlands where the reds and greys live and the and the hills where the yellow footed wallabies live, they kind of live in that that twilight zone between the two, but they're chunky. Mm. They're strong and powerful. So these are kind of chunky, as if as if a wedge-tailed eagle is not powerful enough, but a chunky wedge-tailed eagle. Is that what we're looking at? Basically, yeah. Um, there also is some indication of different flight behavior based on the wing bones. So for Thinartuatus pachyosteus, we have a complete humerus, so that's the main bone in the upper arm that connects directly to your shoulder. And compared to a wedge tail, the shaft has much more notable curvature. And what this, in and so, well, a wedge-tailed eagle has a very straight humerus shaft. And what this tells us is that Dinartoetus pachyosteus was engaging in more flapping flight. So eagles with much straighter humeri tend to be more soaring um, birds rather than flapping birds. So that indicates that could indicate perhaps preferred ecology. So it could be that Dinartoetus pachyosteus preferred more um, environments where it wasn't able to soar around as freely. So forests might be an example of that because it has to, you know, constantly dodge through the trees. Or it could be an indication of you know, behaviour. So perhaps um, it was more of a pursuit predator, you know, directly flying after prey rather than necessarily waiting to ambush it. Because, yeah, where do you stop and just... Load. I've seen, I've actually saw last year because the rains had been good and things were good. I was like 15 in a group soaring. Mm. So these ones, um, Pachyosteus, didn't do that. Yeah. I don't think they did. Well, and it's remarkable. Maybe not to the same degree. Yeah, it's quite remarkable though, isn't it? Just, just on that bone, that single bone can give us uh, an indication that, well, actually, you know, this is something that may well have flapped in and around like through forests, through dodging forests, because it didn't do the soaring thing. And it gives mm. you that sense of the different ecological niches that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, so where where were these bones, where were these fossils found? So currently we just have fossils of um Pachyosteus from the Naracourt Caves. Um, we have fossils of Dinartoletus gaffi from uh, Naracourt Caves, um, Mare's Cave up in the Flinders Ranges, as well as the Wellington Caves in New South Wales. And 
Cryptogyps is probably the most um, broadly expansive because we have fossils from Western Australia, from the Nullarbor. We have fossils from um, the Limestone Coast region, the Lime Coast region, so near Mount Gambier, up in the northern part of South Australia by the Warburton River, and also from the Wellington Caves in New South Wales. So it was present across most of the southern half of Australia at the least. Okay, so yeah, is is there a and 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 obviously finding fossils is a function of taphonomy, which can be it's just well, we just happen to have found these fossils in these particular areas. Mm. These birds may have been elsewhere, we just haven't had the fossils or the fossils they didn't fossilize in those areas. But yeah. where we have found them, what what's the is there a similarity in what the the living ecosystems might have been like across those places? A little hard to tell with some. So a lot of the fossils we have from the Wellington Caves example, they were collected a very long time ago and they didn't have their exact location data or stratigraphic data written down. So we don't know exactly which deposits they came from and therefore what the context of those fossils is. So we don't know what species they might have lived alongside. The Mayor's Cave one is a bit similar because there's not as much burial in that cave. They were rather more scattered along the cave floor. We do know that there were, we can give it a rough age to late Pleistocene because there's also megafauna species such as Phylacoleo known from that cave. Also funnily enough, fossils of koala from that cave. Apparently, according to Aaron Caymans, um, that's the first record of koalas from the Southern Flinders Ranges. Um, so that could perhaps be indicating a more forested environment compared to the quite arid open scrubland we see around there today. Yeah, because we're often told, it's interesting, the koala thing, because we're often just like, well, you know, the koalas that are in the Adelaide Hills aren't from here, the, the koalas on Tango Island aren't from here. But maybe there were koalas here, but a long, long time ago. Yeah. Well, in fact, not maybe if there's a fossilised koala in the Flinders Ranges, then they were, I guess. Mm. Um, so the the where you've got two different kinds of, of this, this group, Gaffe and Pachyosteus, so that suggests that maybe they had a common ancestor and maybe this group came from here. Is that is that what the researchers, what, what, what you're thinking with this? Uh, yeah, so obviously for two species in the same genus to exist, they had to have had a common ancestor in the past, and the nature of evolution means that that common ancestor could have lived potentially up to millions of years ago. So because we currently only have species of Dinartoetus in Australia, that likely means that ancestor arrived in Australia and over time diversified into multiple species. So it's quite likely that the Dinartoasis genus was present in Australia for quite some time before the last few species went extinct in the late Pleistocene. Yeah, okay. So so we don't find them anywhere else in the world, this particular group? Yeah, yeah. so far. Okay, okay. Again, that could be because that's what it is, or it could be we just haven't found them yet. Okay. Yeah. Um so so we we in Australia there's 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 often conversations um about the extinction of the megafauna and you mentioned you know finding some of these in in Narragut caves and um and and you know that they would have lived alongside thylacoleos maybe hunted particular um 
uh, well, obviously they would have eaten things that were alive back then, and and yeah, that proto on Joey's were delicious. I don't know, <laughs> um, but but what what does it tell us about the extinction event in Australia? And and I use the word event kind of loosely. What how, does it does it help inform us about how it might have happened here, or 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 why? Um, well, having, you know, certain birds of prey go extinct does show that um, there were more, I suppose, widespread consequences of the megafauna extinction. Um, so other species that were likely relying on them would have, so it's sort of like a cascade effect. So mm. other species that might have relied on them also subsequently went extinct as well. So that might be because they were so like in the case of cryptogyps, having you know, the vast majority of your large-bodied animals dying out would have been uh, pretty serious because those animals would have been a main source of you know, food for them. Um, and it might be that you know, other species moving in to fill those gaps, so like all the kangaroos that we have today, maybe they weren't quite as numerous as they are in the present, so they might have not have been quite enough to... Um, so essentially fill in that gap for them. Yeah. Um, because it, it's, it's, I'm just thinking like, like, like following on from that, you know, at, at the size that these, these birds were um, and their chunkiness, um, what, what would they have eaten? Because, and I asked this question because, um, a couple of years ago, I was um, up in the Flinders Ranges, and we were we were looking for yellow-footed rock wallabies. And from a distance, we saw two wedge-tailed eagles dive bombing a euro. Now, it wasn't a fully grown euro, but they were dive bombing it. And we we eventually got to where the dive bombing had happened, and they'd literally knocked it off a cliff. So, <laughs> so, um, and I'm not saying that these chunkier ones are going to be like chasing diprotodons, fully grown diprotodons. But what 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 can we at, and I suppose because the other interesting thing too is that that idea that they're they're they're, they're dining on different things. Mm. So what what would what would they each have for lunch? <laughs> so certainly the Dinartolator species, their size and fairly robust build does indicate they would have been well adapted to preying on relatively large mammals and birds. So um, and, you know, these probably would have been quite large compared to their own body size. So, again, you know, quite a few kangaroos probably would have been on the menu and quite likely perhaps juveniles of megafaunal species. So, obviously, they're not going to be pursuing an adult diprotodon because that's a bit out of their size class. But um, a diprotodon joey that's wandered too far from its mum or even um, joeys of the um, giant kangaroos that were around the time or maybe even some of the giant flightless birds certainly could have been an option. And of course that's um not count that's not taken into consideration, you know, nearly grown or grown individuals that might have been um incapacitated in some way, whether through sickness or injury. So um they ate koalas then? That's certainly a possibility. So we do have large eagles today that prey on arboreal mammals. So most famously there's the harpy eagle in South America that preys on sloths. So it actively 
flies past, grabs a sloth and pulls it out of the tree. So Dinatolators, especially Dinatolators Gaffy, certainly could have been large enough to do that to a koala. That's quite, I'm just, I'm, it's just the visual. I want people that are listening to visualize this bird flying down, plucking it. It's like grabbing an apple from a tree, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then just, just scoffing it down. Okay, so Australia, this giant continent with this fascinating uh, story of, of bird evolution where where does this and and the discoveries that you've the, the, the like the, the the vulture that we talked about um wh where does that put us and 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 the songbirds and stuff where, where does it put us in terms of importance to understanding bird evolution at a at an international at a global level so um in both cases eagles and vultures are likely to have originated outside of Australia. I think currently based on the oldest fossils, um, eagles have originated in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I think vultures quite likely did as well. So vultures actually appeared during the Miocene around the time when grasslands were expanding and animals were, you're getting large grazing animals appearing. So it's significant in that it shows that, you know, Today, of course, Australia has no vultures, which makes it a bit of an, an anomaly compared to most other continents except Antarctica. And of course, Antarctica, there's a very good reason why we don't have vultures there. Um, but Cryptogyp shows that vultures did in fact reach Australia, which really should be no surprise because we know they made it as far as Southeast Asia. And so the fact is that for whatever reason, um, Australia, is really the only continent to have completely lost its you know, native vulture species. So whether that's because the severity of our megafaunal extinction was just really hard compared to elsewhere, might um, we don't really know, but it's very striking to say the least. Mm, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, so, and speaking of the, the cryptogyps, um, My understanding too is that with the as you've been doing this research, you've learned some new things about that. Is that right? In terms of yeah, that's right. So we got some fossils from a site called um, Greenwater Hole Cave um, in South Australia. Um, it's near Mount Gambier, so very close to um, the Narracourt region, and it's a flooded cave. So all the bones are actually underwater. So um, we actually found well. So in the past couple of decades, a pair of almost complete wings has been found. So most of the bones from the wings, unfortunately not at a complete humerus because that would have been useful, but you take what you can get. Mm -hmm. And what they show is that cryptogyps lacked what we call um, pneumatization of the wing bones. So in a lot of vultures, they have these regions in the wing bones that are you know, filled with like these sort of holes and air pockets. So this is thought to be an adaptation to help lighten the load, essentially, and which is pretty important when you're a large soaring bird. But cryptogyps doesn't seem to have had them. So perhaps compared to living vultures, at least, it might have been a slightly less efficient soarer, but clearly it had no trouble getting around given that it's present in so many sites across southern Australia. 
So it's interesting to say the least. So it might actually reflect perhaps that it's a more, well, we say basal or primitive vulture. So perhaps it comes from a lineage that's um, more, less, that's older um, than most living vultures. So it might've been from a group that predates that specialization perhaps. So it, its ancestors didn't develop that trait, but it managed to survive anyway. Right. So do, do we do we have any sense um, of of the overseas vultures of their ancestors and and similarities between cryptogyps and them in in terms of that that um, I guess that that not as well evolved soaring ability. Um. So it's generally pretty much present across um, all vultures, subfamilies and families because, again, you get these quite large birds who, because, you know, you want to be large to have a large wingspan for, because that makes soaring more efficient, but at the same time you don't want to get too heavy because that's just going to make things more difficult for you. So cryptogyps comparatively was slightly smaller than a wedge-tailed eagle, so compared to quite a few vulture species, that's actually on the smaller side, strange as that sounds. Mm. Um, so it might be perhaps that um, as a smaller vulture, cryptogyps wasn't quite as heavy, so it didn't need um, that sort of adaptation. But there are some very small vultures out there that are, would have been about half the size. So um, I think some of them might have um, you know, that pneumatization, but perhaps they come from an ancestor that, you know, it did have it, but they gradually grew smaller over time. So it's something that's really interesting to say the least. Yeah. all And it is, isn't it? All, all of the, whenever there's a change, whenever there's a, cause, cause the way that evolution works is that things are, are, are functionally dictated. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like, it's like, well, this works. <laughs> But you're also building on what was already there in the first place. Yeah. Talk to a giraffe and its stupid neck and and things and stuff. Um, okay, we've got about three minutes left. Um mm -hmm. so what next in terms of so season one we talked about vultures, season two, it's eagles and vultures. What are we gonna get in season three of Paleo Jam? Are you working on I'm currently working on a small project um, that's looking at these old species that were described um, from the Darling Downs in Queensland. And currently there's some debate as to their validity. So they were described as you know, extinct species, but currently there's a bit of a debate as to whether they're actually extinct species or if they've just been misidentified as specimens of living species. And that's um, something that's not unheard of. So sometimes back in the day, especially um, when people and researchers might not have had the same access to resources or collections that they do today, they might have you know just drawn some premature conclusions about the uniqueness of their specimens and decided, okay, this is a distinct species, but maybe it's not after all. Yeah. So you you bring a fresh set of eyes to something that's been looked at. It's not. It's not about going out into the field and and digging up new things. In this particular case, it's about mm -hmm. looking in the drawer at what some other folk have looked at already, 
<clears throat> I guess, and going, well, actually, maybe it's this or maybe it's something else. And yeah, that's pretty much right. And I guess, and I guess too, we we given the nature of of technological innovation, there's a whole bunch of techniques in paleontology that can be used now that we couldn't use 20 years ago because they didn't exist, or 30 years ago, or 100. Yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, um, what is it about birds? You've got a minute. To tell me, how did you? What what is it about birds that for you have gone? That's the one, that's the and and eagles and vultures in particular, because it's always interesting to to because paleos do tend to find a little thing that they love working on and stuff. So what was it for you about these cool little winged things? Ah, uh, they just well, birds are very interesting because they're a very diverse group. They're the only surviving descendants of the dinosaurs of course. it's because they're dinosaurs isn't it <laughs> that's, part work of it, on, that's part of it <laughs> but yeah so it's just incredible how many niches and they occupy and just how diverse a group they really are yeah yeah i think that's probably i think that is the correct answer 11 was it eleven thousand species of birds something like that yeah on the planet and it's like yes um I think we are in the last eight or nine seconds. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellen, for joining us again. And um, we look forward to hearing from you again um, as, uh, as you continue your research career. Thank you. It's time to spread some paleo jazz.